Did you know that wasp stings really itch the day after? Dave, I feel like we haven't talked in forever. I know, and I feel bad um, because we, you know, we haven't we we've had uh, a gap between the last episode and this one. Um, I know I I've, I've been just traveling like nuts. We, you know, we were talking about this before. I was I was in D.C. Came home for a couple days. Got on my motorcycle. Rode to Lake Erie for a motorcycle rally. <laughs> came home. Donated blood. Got on an airplane. <laughs> Flew to Boston. Oh, wait, sorry, back up. So wait, literally donated blood, or is that a euphemism, or is that a metaphor no, or something? No, literally donated blood. So yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, yeah. So it's um, and then uh, I got got back from DC, and and now I'm home for the week, and so it's like it's just nice to be home, sleep in my own bed. Nice. How about you? Uh, it was good. I spent this uh, I spent this last weekend looking for a new desk. Yeah. Um, so as you know, I'm, 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 I'm a standing worker. I like standing, I like mm-hmm. standing desks. Um, and to date, most of my standing desks have been these, uh, ramshackle ad hoc kind of milk crate on top of an encyclopedia kind of standing desks. And, uh, now that I'm moved into this new house, I'm excited about getting myself a proper standing desk. And so, uh, I was Googling around online and, uh, realized that the store I was about to buy the standing desk from is actually located here in Austin. Wow. Yeah, so I got off the computer, got in my car, and drove over to uh, the Human Solution, which is, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's the name of it, and uh, visited the good people there, um, and they walked me through all all my options, um, and I'm super excited. I'm talking about a standing desk that'll kind of raise and lower with the press of a button. I'll have enough, plenty of space on it. Um, Mm. I'll be able to put my laptop and, or my mini laptops and, uh, and monitors on, uh, arms, uh, like articulated arms so that I can lift them up, uh, and pull them off the desk. Uh, so the arms will keep them kind of hovering over the desk so I can have free desk space when I need it. And when I can, I can lower them back down and get back to work. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm super excited. Yeah. So are they making the desk, do they make it there or do they have an Amish person make it or how, how do they, uh, yeah, I, I think um, they, well, they have a bunch of parts and I think they'll assemble it um, kind of on premises, if you like. Um, although I did, my friend Andy, though, uh, who happens to, uh, was at one time a professional carpenter and is now an, uh, a very accomplished amateur carpenter, um, had uh, sent me designs for actually constructing my own standing desk, um, hmm. which I certainly appreciate. Uh, there is also no way I am going to make my own desk. Um, yeah. I am, I'm at a point in my life where I'm very comfortable writing somebody a check to make desks for me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I would be getting like a, a door with some sawhorses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe exactly. nails. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm willing, I'm willing to pay a little extra for some spit and polish and a lot less sweat. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Uh, all right. Well, we got to, Dave, I'm super excited about this, uh, this interview we did. Yes. Uh, so Steve Citron Pusti, uh, who's one of the uh, evangelists for uh, for OpenShift, and and actually one of my favorite public speakers at Red Hat. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, we got a chance to sit down with him. I think we got like twenty twenty five minutes with him, right? Yeah, it's all high energy too. It's super it's, high energy. Well, because it's Steve, he's a high energy yeah. guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Uh, but anyway, I, oh, okay. So, but we got to stick to the formula here. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, what, how would it, what are we going to do with uh, what? What else is on the show here? We got a uh, professional wrestling, mm-hmm. uh, professional Android security. Uh, Steve, who's a professional evangelist, and a very unprofessional Linus Torvalds. Yep. 
Uh, so Steve, so Steve, what's your name? Where am I? I think I'm having a stroke. Um, I'm Dave. <laughs> Dave, Dave of the Dave and Gunner Show. Uh, yeah. where, 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 do, where do people go for uh, for for links, or if they want to read more about some of the stuff we're going to talk about today? Yeah. So if they if they want to go to the Stephen Gunner Show, that's a different show, <laughs> different channel. Um, yeah, but for the Dave and Gunner Show, mm-hmm. they want to go to dgshow.org. So D is in Dave, mm-hmm. not D is in Steve. G is in Gunner Show. <laughs> dot org right and on itunes right yep yep and we also have uh we, we do have a backlog of things and so we're clearing stuff out on our cutting room floor which is uh very exciting as well so what's what's in there yeah so we've got a, a great new tumblr uh from our good friend eric morrissey uh called a coolingo mm-hmm. uh, we've got a, a raspberry pi powered by fire um and a little bit more on uploading our brain to google Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. it's a don't good, be afraid don't yeah. be afraid yeah, but what could go wrong yeah. um oh that's great and uh, i do want to encourage folks to go to the show on itunes and rate the show because that actually does matter um uh, mm-hmm. so uh do us a solid just by clicking the little stars on the itunes thing there that'd be great cool. so dave uh let's get this thing rolling you found a link uh, there's some embarrassment <laughs> let me put this a different way there was an unusual amount of embarrassment about uh, professional wrestling yeah, yeah, and I'm sure you are as big a professional wrestling fan as I am. Right. And Right, exactly. Um, and so uh, it winds up that I, I saw this news article that uh, the WWE is embarrassed uh, because the wrestling match outcomes were leaked online. No. Well, yeah. How, how is that? I, I'm so confused, Dave. They, you mean these outcomes are preordained? They, they've, they've, they've arranged these ahead of time? I don't, I don't think so. But I mean, I, I was, it blew my mind because I didn't know that, you know, how, how would people know what the outcomes of a professional wrestling match would be? Um, but yeah, so I saw that the, the WWE refused to acknowledge that it could have, there could have been a leaker in their ranks. And they said mm-hmm. in a statement that we may have a modern day Nostradamus on our hands. Oh, right. No, that's Occam's razor, right? The, the simplest explanation, usually the, uh, usually the correct one so um since there was absolutely no way that these fights were fixed or arranged ahead of time then uh it just makes sense that there's uh, a clairvoyant on staff Mm -hmm. yep yep all right good um let's see what else we got uh so a weirdly serious uh security breach over google right Mm mm-hmm yep Yep. So uh, it looks like they're storing wireless network passwords in the clear, um, according to the EFF. Uh, they filed a bug report uh, about Google storing the WLAN passwords uh, in their application backup. So if you're, you know, you back up your settings to Google, which is great. I, you know, I use that a lot to mm-hmm. pump. Well, dang, I said that out loud. Um, so <laughs> now people know that all my passwords are unencrypted. Um, <laughs> So that so it's like you you get a new device you plug your you know an Android device you plug in your wireless password and it's like oh I want to back that up to Google so in case your um, your your um, uh, you you blow away your your uh, Android device and you want to restore it you know you could restore it and it'll bring all the passwords back the unfortunate thing is that the passwords were unencrypted um, so. Um, and one of the things that I saw in the comments on on Google Code is it uh, well, I guess it was one of the Google engineers saying is the general public willing to lose access to their backup should they forget their password? 
Right. And well, I, no, I, I don't know if that's a necessary thing. Yeah, well, I, and I'm confused about this too because that means that would if they're storing the pass the passwords in plain text, that would mean that they were storing the entire backup in plain text as well, right? Yeah, I don't know, but you would think that would be if you were to encrypt anything, I would encrypt the password somehow. Sure. Um, really strange. And actually, Apple had something really similar where they were unless in your backups of your i devices, um, unless you had a password on them, they were not encrypted. Um, mm-hmm. so all that stuff was sitting out there, I guess, you know, searchable or, or hackable. Um, it's strange. I, you know, it's like, it really comes down to kind of customer education though, because, um, you know, unless, unless you are actually storing the stuff yourself, um, you really can't rely on anyone else to be keeping this stuff secure on your behalf. Right. Um, yep. just cause you throw it over a wall doesn't mean that it's actually being handled properly. In fact, it probably means it's not being handled properly. Right. Yeah, um, and so you you have a uh, a public service announcement. Yeah, I'm gonna. Idea? Yeah, I'm gonna. T- uh, this may be accompanied by a, a crude uh, Photoshop uh, encrypty the bear. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe he'll be like a little padlock with a little, like a ranger hat on him. Um, and it looks a little bit like Dan Walsh. Looks looks a lot like Dan Walsh. As a matter of fact, it's yeah. maybe a photograph of Dan Walsh, um, mm-hmm. uh, saying that only you can prevent password leakage. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I read the article, too, and I was like, WPA, which is the uh, uh, the encryption, WPA, which is the encryption mechanism for, for wireless passwords, or at least the one that, that most of us use, that, that's actually not that secure, right? I don't know about WPA. I know WEP is pretty weak. And, yeah. And that has, you know, people have gotten away from that. And you have WPA, and then you have WPA2 and all that. And mm-hmm. for me, who lives in suburbia, you know, it's sort of like if somebody's going to they need to be physically close to my house um, to be able to mm-hmm. get on my network. And even if they do get on my network, hopefully, you know, I got all my systems have firewalls on them. They all have encryption wherever it's important mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. So even if somebody does get on my network, I'm not too worried. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I was, that's what I was thinking is that I'm not, yeah. I, I mean, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll kind of throw, throw a barrier up, right. By putting a password on my wireless, but really it's, um, uh, it's just like it's not even like locking a door. It's just like closing a door, right? Um, yeah. I, I just, just well, I, I assume they can be hacked. I assume honest that people can... honest. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Right. Yeah. So it keeps yeah. it keeps the neighbor from leeching off you know my Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. you know clogging it up with their own Netflix streams or whatever. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So but it's a, it's a, well, we've talked about this before. You've only got to be the second least secure guy, right? Um, right. in the neighborhood because yes. <laughs> somewhere in your neighborhood, I'm sure there's an unsecured Wi-Fi which somebody's you know more than happy to use. Like nobody's gonna um, nobody's gonna sit there and spend 15 minutes trying to hack your WPA password if there's another guy across the street who's completely unprotected, right? They're just gonna yeah. go and use that guy's stuff, right? And if they wanted to, they probably could, or they could find some other ways to you know do a black bag operation to get in my house to get whatever. The other part <laughs> too is that the of if I were to list the importance of my passwords, probably the, the WPA password is, like you said, not as important. There are other passwords that are for services on the internet that you don't necessarily need to be close to my access point or my house to mm-hmm. you know, to compromise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, so, and, and actually, speaking of security, um, <laughs> there's another another security measure made the news, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Uh, so. Uh, 
Yeah, Cyanogen mod. Um, they're they're getting involved with SE Linux. So what is, what is Cyanogen mod? Yeah, so it's, 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 it's yeah, I, I have. Um, uh, so Cyanogen mod is so Android is open source as we as we know, um, and so the Cyanogen crew will take the open source uh, Android uh, software. And they will build it themselves, and they'll make their own tweaks. Uh, they make their own their own optimizations. And there's really a whole community is built up around the Cyanogen build uh, of the Android code. Um, and in a lot of ways, they're actually growing into a project in their own right. Right? Uh, mm-hmm. They're not just uh, so it's not just a bunch of guys who are rebuilding the code that Google gave them. Um, they really are kind of creating a new version of Android, um, mm-hmm. which, which they call Cyanogen. Um, and so they just announced that they're going to incorporate SE Linux. Um, yep. uh, right alongside, so I guess, but Google is also incorporating SE Linux, right? We've talked about this before that um, SE Linux has been added to the Android tree, mm-hmm. um, and so the regular Android users will get SE Linux protections as part of version four three of the of mm-hmm. the of the distribution. Uh, but Cyanogen is going to be doing. They're also adding SE Linux, but they're doing their own policy. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So instead of like you said, instead of them just taking whatever Google puts out there and rebuilding it, they're actually creating their own policy as well. So um, hmm. I think that's that's pretty interesting. Um, you know, so instead of just being a, a consumer of what somebody else does, they're they're actually adding adding more to it, like you said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I wonder, I mean, I wonder, so knowing what little I know about how Android works, right, you've got like the core operating system and there's different components of the operating system which each have different tasks and you're probably going to write a policy that um, makes sure that, you know, the Wi-Fi software can't talk to the camera, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just to be totally, you know, reductive about this. But um, I imagine it, it does get a lot more complicated when you add apps on top of it, right? Um, mm-hmm. So rather than having to write a policy for every single application, I presume there's some kind of generic policy that's applied to every application that you download. Um, and then I guess ways of turning on and off access to stuff like, so, you know, Android lets you choose, like, does this app have access to your, well, your camera, uh, can this app, uh, access your contacts stuff like that. I presume that the same options will be there. They'll just be enforced by SE Linux now, um, yep. instead of, instead of the regular stuff. Um, uh, that kind of, that kind of limits what you can do with an SE Linux policy though. Right. Um, cause it's not like you've got a green field of, um, of opportunity for first things because the uh, things that you would allow or disallow are pretty much already prescribed by the Android mm-hmm. system, right? I, I mean, I would think. Yeah, and I, well, I, I remember I like years ago I was talking to Dan Walsh about this, and it's like, well, you know, I asked him that you know about uh, you know, we were talking about how like when you download an app, like you were saying, is it oh it has permissions for you know, using the camera or this or that. And, you know, and he basically said, oh, yeah, that's the thing that everybody ignores and installs anyhow, right? Because <laughs> right. the other part is that you don't really have, and I see the same thing, too, with, like, um, like with Twitter. Like, mm-hmm. when you allow a third-party website to use Twitter, and it's like, oh, it could tweet on your behalf. And, and there right, aren't, right. as a user, I don't have the fine-grained access control to say, no, Mm-hmm. I don't want you doing that. Right. Um, I don't know if SE Linux allows you know, or SE Android would allow you to do that from a user perspective as well to to be able to button it up. But then the other side of it is, would the average telephone user do all kind of fine grained policy, or, or are they going to be more likely the type to you know set in four zero and just you know mm-hmm. just get it to work? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, I wonder if, especially, I wonder if Cyanogen is going to explore the uh, an opportunity for an app to ship its own policy. 
Um, mm-hmm. I don't even know if that's technically possible, but it would suddenly be a lot more interesting if, um, if as an example, like Twitter could ship their app with their own policy in it to actually provide more fine-grained controls, right? Um, yep. So access to contacts, as an example. Um, access to the you know external storage or whatever it is. Interesting. Huh. Okay. Um, let's see. I made that crack about Linus Torvalds. I have a feeling I'm going to get mail about that later. But uh, I don't know. <laughs> so <laughs> what happened? Uh, yeah, well, so, uh, so Linus Torvalds, uh, who is... He's kind of he's the archetype of that um, uh, that open source project management cliche of the the uh, the tyrant, right? Yeah, um, benevolent dictator. The benevolent yeah. dictator, um, yeah. or really tyrant, actually, uh, in this case, yeah. and and uh, apparently really bent one of the uh, one of the USB contributors. Uh, one of the there's a woman, Sarah Sharp. She's a contributor to the USB subsystem in the kernel, mm-hmm. um, and she got she works for Intel. Um, got really bent out of shape uh, at some point because uh, Linus told one of his lieutenants, uh, Craig Crow Hardman, um, who's a longtime kernel contributor um, and one of his very trusted lieutenants, uh, told him, he says, uh, uh, you're being too nice to the contributors. Um, you just need to learn to shout at people, he said. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, of course, like, you know, this tore through the community. Now people, you know, are picking sides and, you know, Linus is saying, um, in order to keep this community under control and kind of exercise your will, you need to, you know, not be nice. You need to, uh, kind of put the hammer down. Um, the other camp says you gotta, you should be respectful and polite and, uh, there's absolutely no reason to be mean. Um, uh, you know, there are plenty of other tools in the toolbox. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of read. I read this. I read the story about this, and I read a couple other, you know, pieces commenting on it. And I just kind of shook my head. I mean, this is amazing that that people have to talk about this. Um, yeah. Well, it reminded me of of you know just that you know that you ner- need to learn to shout at people. It's almost like uh, reminds me of the Untouchables movie, where um, mm-hmm. you know De Niro is Al Capone. You know, he made an example out of somebody with a baseball bat. And, you know, just to right. send a message right. and, and to right. get people in line. And I guess that's one way to, you know, that's one school of leadership, right? Um, <laughs> the Al Capone school of leadership. Yeah. And, and so, and, and I think Linus was like, well, it's really hard to be nice to people or, and I, I know this myself, it's really hard to convey emotion through an email message and if and if you know if you don't do conference calls or in person meetings as often and you do everything through email maybe you know you need to be a lot more explicit and you know and and I'm not saying he's right or wrong but I think that's his premise where if you you know are just totally you know you don't sugarcoat anything and and um you know you say if somebody's not doing the right thing you you call them out but I don't know if if that is the most effective way to motivate people. And, and you and I are very similar. We're, we're yeah. we, that's yeah. not our style um, not at all. where no. other people, it is our style, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that it's also a false choice, right? So Linus is saying like, you got to swear, you got to learn to shout at people. Um, what is that? It's, at some point he said, uh, uh, you need to create a real threat, be frank with contributors and sometimes swear a bit. It'll cut your mail queue in half. I promise. Um, yeah. which I'm sure is like a little bit flip and he's doing it for, you know, comic effect. I presume, um, you know, I <laughs> I like your untouchables. Or once I kind of got this image of Linus saying that like major kernel decisions should be made in the middle of the uh, middle of Grand Central Station in a bloody shootout. But um, the <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
it's 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 a false choice. Um, it, it seems like there are ways of being direct with people without being abusive, um, mm-hmm. and it seems like a lack of imagination on Linus's part um, that uh, he can't see a way towards being direct without being abusive. Um, you know, it's a little bit disappointing. Um, and do you think you know? I noticed that that it was a lady that called Linus out. Yeah, which and- dragged you know, which dragged in a whole bunch of you know, kind of. Uh, Gender, gender, yeah, right. No, exactly. Um, which is also, which is equally disappointing, right? Um, yeah. uh, because her her comment, and I think she said this herself, like her comment doesn't have anything to do with her gender. Um, uh, but just by virtue of being a woman, uh, suddenly a whole bunch of gender issues got dragged into it, um, and made the whole conversation, you know, kind of that much more complicated. Um, when really it's just like you don't need to be abusive towards people in fact you never need to be abusive towards people you know (laughs) yeah um, never in my life have i felt the need to be abusive or if i've accidentally been abusive or treated somebody poorly um i never felt like that was the right decision after the fact you know um anyway it's too bad it's disappointing for for linus to be giving that kind of advice even if his tongue was in his cheek yeah and you know and is that I don't want to call it a lazy way to motivate people. Oh, I think it is. Or- I think it's, I, no, I, I will, I will call it lazy. I think it absolutely is lazy. Um, you know, it's how four year olds get what they want, you know, just scream yeah. loud enough and eventually somebody will capitulate. Right. <laughs> it's, yeah. Um, and it's totally unnecessary when you're Linus Torvalds, you have control over what commits go into that tree. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's all he has to do is say no. And that's the end of it. <laughs> yeah. But, or is it, is it sort of that, and I don't want to say Stalinism that, that, where you, you know, like you know, historically, like, like Stalin would, you know, make people, you know, you, you have these purges or, or whatever. And then, <laughs> but then did it, we it, just, did we just hit Gawain's law? <laughs> yeah. No, we didn't get the Hitler. Yet. Um, so, so, but would it like where, where, you know, you do this strong arm thing and does that make people admire and respect you more? Or is that part of the premise too? That you know, it's sort of like if you have this this iron fist and a velvet glove, um, you know, and and so whenever you do um, praise somebody, does that make the praise more meaningful because you're not yelling at them or cursing at them? And and you actually said, hey, you did a great job, as opposed to a guy who's nice all the time, and and they say something nice to you, it it may not move the needle as much or motivate somebody to to do a lot more because that person's always nice. Right. Well, I mean, that's totally, but also that's totally backwards, right? Um, I mean, how many abusive yelling people do you know that you genuinely respect? Right. Like approaching zero. Um, and you know, (laughs) Stalin was, you know, (laughs) I don't don't want to, I don't want, I'm reluctant to engage this, this Stalin metaphor because we're going to get all all kinds of email. Um, but the, but, um, you know, the moral of the story is that Sure, we we encourage email. We would love to. We would love to get email. Um, uh, but the I don't know, the idea that you need to be you know <laughs> you need to be like really abusive because people will enjoy it when you stop um, is you know that's totally backwards. It's really perverse. Um, and you know, especially in the case of I'll go back to this. Especially in the case of Linus Torvalds, who has so much natural power. Like I mean, he's accreted a great deal of uh, power and control. Um, because you know, within the community, um, just through his reputation, and um, it seems totally unnecessary for him to be abusive. Like I don't see what the what function it, it serves. Um, 
like he says, you know, it'll cut your male cue in half. Um, well, okay. Like, but is that, is that the problem that you need to be solving? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if the problem that he needs to be solving is like sifting through contributions to figure out, uh, what goes in the kernel and, and what stays out, um, that seems completely unrelated to how much abuse you're going to hurl at the community. Right. I'd- well, I guess the other way to look at it is that you're going to get, if it cuts your male cue in half, then that may mean that you may get less people contributing. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, just kind of embarrassing. It's embarrassing as a, as kind of an episode. Yep. Disappointing. Um, and again, I, and I'll, I'll go back and reiterate it. I, I think it's just, it, it shows a lack of imagination, right? Um, where you feel like my only options are do nothing or be abusive to people on mailing lists. And those are my mm-hmm. only two options. Like, no, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's an entire universe of gray area in between. Um, so disappointing. Yep. Anyway, you know, it wasn't disappointing though. What? Uh, the, uh, the Red Hat government, uh, partner day, uh, that we had in DC last week. Oh, really? You were there? I was there. I was there. It was great. We had a great time. Um, bunch of our resellers, distributors, uh, uh, got together, um, in a, uh, relatively graceless, uh, hotel room and, uh, talked about Red Hat for a whole day. It was fun. Hmm, uh, nice. so we had, so we had presenters from Red Hat come in and, uh, basically give them training on, uh, some products, uh, some old favorites and some of the new stuff that's coming out like OpenShift and, and cloud forms, things like that, OpenStack. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really great to see, uh, you know, some of these, uh, some of these partners are kind of seasoned veterans of Red Hat. Um, others are uh, brand new to it, like some people who had just been hired like the week before. And, you know, some of them, you know, in some cases, like they'd never actually worked with computers before or like never worked in a sales job before. Um, and so it was kind of fun to uh, to have to explain Red Hat to somebody who's relatively uninitiated. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, sorry. yeah, I always see the, the new Red Hat sales rep, then they say licenses. And the, yeah, right, right. Goes, I don't no, swear no, at him. No, no, I don't swear at him. <laughs> <laughs> Subscriptions, dude. <laughs> That's right. Um, so that was cool. That was a that was a good time. And uh, and if if we can pull it together, I'm going to include a link to uh, some of the material that we presented in the uh, in the show notes. If I can find some of that. Cool. Um, and then coming up, we got the uh, one of our old favorites, the uh, military open source working group. Yep. Much yep, August six to eight, mm-hmm. and uh, I think Sean Walls is going to be talking there. Yep, yep, uh, and I'll be down there. Apparently, I just learned today I'm going to be on a panel. Uh, Good. From, yeah, um, and I think I'm gonna, I'm also going to do an ignite talk. Uh, wow. Yeah, which means I got to figure out what I'm going to talk about. So if anybody's got any suggestions, let me know. Yeah. Um, but we'll include a link to that. Um, I don't think it's too late to register. Um, it's in Charleston, South Carolina this year. Mm-hmm. Um, down there at a Spay War. So hey, folks, go check it out. Um, so Dave, what's the latest on uh, what's the latest on Lauren and Scratch? Yeah. So we got this is amazing. Um, so her lug, uh, she's presenting at the Akron lug on this Thursday, August first, mm-hmm. and so um, it's I have and we'll, I'll put the link in the show notes to the event. But we ha- I've never seen so many people sign up for an Akron lug event ever since we've been doing meetup for like I'd say like over a year now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we got tremendous turnout, and she's been going up to uh, uh, one of the business incubators up in Cleveland and mm-hmm. taking some programming classes up there. And told the in it's uh, it's basically a programming for women class, and uh, um, and so she was like telling people, it's like, hey, I'm presenting, so they're promoting it um, at this incubator. Um, the uh, 
the the guy that interviewed her from Element 14, um, he's going to be there, and they're going to be raffling off a Raspberry Pi. Um, and and like I said before, with the incubator, there's going to be a lot of the the women in uh, the girls who code class are coming out for that, and they're bringing their their kids down. And oh, great! Um, so it's it's just going to be an amazing turnout. And also, you know, the other episode we we're talking about her computer science teacher, her mm-hmm. future one. Right. Um, he's going to try to come out. Um, so <laughs> it's like no pressure, Lauren. You know, it's, <laughs> it's you know it's it's just uh, it's going to be a heck of. A, I think this is going to be a packed room, and and I know people. There was about forty people for her talk when she presented on Gluster in January, and uh, but I, I think she's going to blow this out. So um, that's why um, we're going to be working really hard this week, helping her uh, practice and and get her demo down cold and everything. So and her guinea pig escape game has over a thousand views uh, Whoa. right now. So that's great. It's like I don't think yeah, it's 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 amazing number of people that have seen that. It's it's. That's awesome. There's a lot of a lot of guinea pig enthusiasts out there. Oh yeah, I think yeah. she was shrewd in tapping that market. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, let's see. All right. So, what's new in public sector, though? Well, you found a website, and you don't know who wrote it. Yeah, I don't know. I I presume it's a Red Hat person because it. Okay, so this is a website called Cloud Forms Now. So, um, Cloud Forms is our infrastructure as a service kind of management. I don't know, Dave. You want to explain Cloud Forms? Yeah, so CloudForms, um, it, it, it basically it's software that allows you to work with, interoperate with, with multiple types of, of virtualization infrastructure or cloud infrastructure. So um, we purchased a company called ManageIQ that actually had a, well, um, and they had a product that actually won at VMworld um, product of the year. It was like last year or the year right, before. Right. Um, which is, and, and I remember that everybody that, you know, when I would talk to our, our rev essays, they would be like, "We need to buy Manage IQ." I mean, mm-hmm. their stuff is so good; it's not even funny. And it's right. things like governance, capacity planning, where um, you know, like you can. And and so right now, we've taken Manage IQ, we've rebranded it as CloudForms 2.0, mm-hmm. and um, it's the kind of thing. It's it's a phenomenal product where it's you could basically attach. So you get CloudForms as a VM appliance. You put it on your VMware infrastructure, and and you just let it sit for like a week or so. And what it'll do is it'll analyze all the VMs that you have. It'll talk to uh, the VMware management console and all that, and it'll give you a report back saying that, well, you know what, you are, um, you know, this this Exchange server that is running on VMware using Windows is, like, you way over-provisioned it. Um, so you could actually fit more Exchange servers on fewer hypervisors and be able to spend less money on your virtualized infrastructure. So, you know, people you know, would invest in CloudForms and, and just have a great ROI by spending less on their virtualization provider. So people are really, really excited about this. And this CloudForms now... Um, website goes into like all kind of crazy detail uh talking about how to use cloud forms and 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 the other thing too is it um i know when whenever you know you you talk about cloud forms and a customer will say well can it do this and more times than not the answer is yes and mm-hmm. it's just amazing how extensible it is so and you well, and, and 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 i'm not sure if you mentioned like the big headline for me on cloud forms is yes it does all that stuff but it also doesn't just do it with vmware right it'll do it with red hat enterprise virtualization it'll do it with amazon um mm-hmm. so you can actually use cloud forms as your i mean the way i talk about it is um it's the tool that sits in between you 
and all of these virtualized or cloud infrastructures. You can manage them all at the same time. Um, and what I see a lot of customers doing is wanting to bring in cloud forms as a way of um, preventing them from uh, <laughs> preventing stuff like VMware from metastasizing in their data center. Um, yes. <laughs> so if you have a tool that sits in between you and this potentially extremely expensive, infectious uh, platform that's going to, you know, a lot of people go in with VMware and it suddenly owns their whole data center, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they've got no negotiating power. But if you've got cloud forms between you and the VMware that you're using, or you know, between you and the Red Hat Enterprise Virtualization that you're using, um, you can use cloud forms to make it easier to go bring in a different and competing platform. Um, yep. So the cloud forms actually encourages competition between the platforms, which ideally will actually keep the keep the cost down. Uh, because yep. you're not handcuffed to any particular vendor, um, in addition to all the excellent like governance and management stuff that you were talking about. Yep, um, exactly. So anyway, all this to say uh, that this website popped up called cloudformsnow.com, um, which is this clearly written by a nerd, clearly written by somebody who knows a lot about cloudforms. So I have to assume it's a manage IQ a former managed IQ employee or a Red Hat employee, uh, but it's a lot of... Or somebody of, we need to hire. Or somebody we need to hire. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> was, uh, but a lot of like really, really good kind of tips and tricks and recipes uh, for Cloudforms installations. So uh, anyway, definitely, we'll include a link in the show notes, but cloudformsnow.com, go check that out. Yep. And then Dave, you got a, let's see, a REL 510 is going to yep. be, God, that makes me feel old. Yep. Can you believe yep. it? The 10th minor release of REL 5? Well, yeah. Um, it, seems, it seems like just yesterday it GA'd. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's like before REL 5 is retired, I think my daughter will be driving. So that's <laughs> <good>. <laughs> it's just It's amazing. Yeah. Wow. So, but the 510 beta is out now. Mm -hmm. um, and it includes uh, SCAP 1.2. So the open yes. SCAP that we ship in there. Um, mm -hmm. Is is uh, conforms to the um, SCAP 1.2 um, standard, mm -hmm. um, and then it also adds in uh, Red Hat Access, and that's we talked about that whenever the week of the summit, where mm -hmm. it allows you to have this tight coupling between uh, Rel or Rev and and in the future other products uh, to our customer portal. So. Mm -hmm. um, like within a shell, you could actually uh, query the knowledge base or there are cases and things like that and, and be able to create a case from, from your shell prompt. Um, so it's pretty cool. That is, um, it. That is cool. So that's out there. Yeah, yeah that's great. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to imagine like what other things we could do with basically like API access to our the customer portal and also to the uh, support ticketing system. Um, mm -hmm. it, seems like there's, it seems like there's a ton of other stuff we could do with that. Um, at the moment, I wish, I wish you and I had talked about this earlier so we could actually go through some of the options, but it seems like that seems like a really, really powerful tool that, um, would have applications beyond just, you know, like interrogating a knowledge base from a command line. I mean, that's like fine, but it seems right. like there could be a ton of other stuff we could do with that. Right. Oh, right. So, you know, imagine, you know, the, and we talked about this at the, during the, the summit episodes where mm -hmm. if you have a you know, you want to submit your uh, an SOS report. Mm -hmm. um, ordinarily, you would be on a system, do the SOS report, FTP it somewhere, mm -hmm. and then from then from FTP, you pull it down to your laptop, and then from your laptop, you'll attach it. You'll go into a web browser, and then you'll attach it to a case. And, and mm -hmm. there's just a lot of steps that you have to go through. Where here, it's like I could just I could create a case, and then it would it would 
pull out the things you want and, and stick it right in the case. So mm-hmm. really, the you know, and that's the thing is that whenever you were having problems and the system's down, the, the time to resolution is always, um, you know, for the system admins to be able to, to get solutions a lot faster is always uh, something that people want. Um, yeah. You know, they get that pressure off because it's so time sensitive. Well, it reminds me, so I've been playing around with Fedora 19. And one of the great features in, in Fedora is when something crashes, mm-hmm. uh, ABRT, which is the little robot in there that watches for crashes and then does something based on the crash, um, mm-hmm. ABRT will pop up and say, oh, this thing crashed. Um, here was the error message. And I've already checked the bug database, and it's a known bug. Like, and here's the bug number. And you can go click on this to go put yourself, you know, uh, add yourself to that bug so you can get notified when, it, when it's fixed. Um, mm-hmm. I, can almost, I can imagine something extremely similar um, happening on RHEL, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it does that. Uh, so RHEL does that already with ABRT, where mm-hmm. um, you have a crash, and not only will it attach itself to Bugzilla, but you could actually there's a plugin, so you could plug it into the create a case from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize exactly how flexible ABRT is, because um, the ABRT, that little robot, um, you can actually write your own scripts to do whatever you want with ABRT. Um, mm-hmm. So when the crash occurs and you get an error message, you can actually you know, not send a bug to us. Um, you could actually send a bug to your own internal ticketing system if you wanted. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's pretty great stuff. Um, <laughs> get, get a bug, something crashes, uh, have it send a text message to your sysadmins. I'm sure they'd love that. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. There's all kinds of stuff you can do. Cool. Yeah. Um, oh, speaking of the customer portal, I'm pumped uh, because my talk that I did with uh, Dan Youngst and uh, Joe mm-hmm. Fernandez um, mm-hmm. about OpenShift um, is up on the customer portal. Nice. That's great. And it's actually, I've given this talk a number of times before and I've actually referred to it here on the show. Um, this is my IT as a, as manufacturing talk. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the first time it's ever been recorded on video. Uh, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty pleased with how it turned out. So, um, if you have a red hat login, you can go, uh, click on the link in the show notes and, uh, go watch, uh, watch me talk about B24 bombers. Yep. And anybody can, it's, you know, anybody with an active subscription can get, into that um yes, and right. so yeah. like if you are like, <laughs> actually a one person company actually with- let me interrupt you um i uh i was so uh, i got the notice that this thing came in i got so really excited that oh the video is posted okay great i'm gonna click on it and that's when i realized that my employee subscription had expired um and so i had to wait i had to go file a ticket with support and wait uh wait about 12 hours before they reactivated my employee subscription and then this thing popped up it was frustrating that's what I get for running Fedora and not the uh, official Red Hat rel. Oh, well. Uh, so, sorry to interrupt you. Go on. No, no. Um, yeah, but the the cool thing there is it it's like anybody can, you know, that, you know, so if you work for a company that has rel, um, all you have to do is talk to the person who owns the RHN login, mm-hmm. and they can create a sub-account for you for you to be able to access the content in the customer portal. Yeah. Um, and it's an unlimited number. Yep. Yep. That's right. That's right. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, speaking of SCAP, um, there's there some really great news. So SCAP, uh, uh, so, you know, we've got this uh, SCAP security guide. Uh, this is the thing where every time we mention it, Sean Wells owes us 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. Or we're up, are we up to 20 now? It's 20. 20 yeah. bucks, yeah. So 20 bucks, Sean. Um, so, you know, the NSA has contributed to this, the Army, NIST, DISA. Um, well, now we've got a civilian agency just contributed to it, uh, DOI. 
uh, yep. Department Department of the Interior is now contributing to the project. Um, mm-hmm. Really, it's, it, this is the thing I love about the project is that by developing security guidance in an open source way, it means that not just the guys with guns get to decide how these things get locked down. Um, it means that civilian agencies like Interior can come in and say, "Oh no, this is a change that we need. This is a change that's going to be useful for us." Um, mm-hmm. And it's all up there and transparent. And uh, we got a link to the commit in the show notes. You can go click on it and see what the DOI contributed. It's great. Print it out. Put it on your refrigerator. <laughs> I framed it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how you do it, but I, I framed it. Um, yeah, I need to get out more. Um, oh, but I did get out more. So one of the things I did um, in DC last week was uh, I was invited to the White House uh, to uh, a ceremony honoring a bunch of civic hackers. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really cool. So it was about two dozen folks who had been using, oh, what's a good way to put it? So using information technology to uh, improve uh, the welfare of uh, their country, um, usually through working together with their government. Um, so there were some great projects there. One of them was uh, this, this crazy story. So uh, do you remember a while back, New Orleans, um, they had like 20 shootings in one night. I think it was on Mother's Day. Do you remember this? No. no. Okay, so... The, so uh, there was a whole there was a rash of shootings in uh, in New Orleans, and uh, they these guys were uh, nerds, right, like you and me, and they were looking for a way to kind of help with this immediate social problem. They came up with such a clever idea. Um, they w- they developed a website that takes anonymous tips. Uh, so you know, a father, uh, a mother, a girlfriend, a wife can send a tip in and say these two people have a beef. These two guys are going to get into a fight, mm. and Based on those two names, uh, it will then scrape kind of publicly available sources, right? Their Facebook connections, their LinkedIn connections, their Twitter, whatever, and figure out what their social networks look like and where they overlap. Based on that overlap, it will then compare that overlap with a list of uh, kind of pre-approved or kind of pre-briefed mediators. Uh, So these would be folks like folks from church groups, um, Mm -hmm. you know, folks from the hip hop community, what have you those mediators would then get an email from the system saying, these two guys have a beef. Would you mind going and uh, brokering a deal, having a sit with them? Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently some immediate results from this, uh, once they put the system in place, apparently they have actual like measurable effects and have actually reduced the number of shootings in new Orleans. Uh, wow. based on this tool. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, so I picked that one out. I, there were a number of other projects, which, uh, which I thought were really exciting. A lot of them having to do with like recovery, um, after, you know, natural disasters, both, in, you know, uh, up in New York and elsewhere, um, really cool projects. And it was great to hear from all these kind of civic hacking folks, um, kind of talking amongst each other and comparing notes. Um, anyway, very cool day. It was really cool. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. So speaking of civic hacking, we got this interview with, uh, Steve. Yep. It was awesome. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin it by talking too much about it. How about we just jump right into it? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Did you know that wasps things really itch the day after? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Did you get the, uh, did you get the, the rush of endorphins as well? Did you feel a little bit drunk after you got stung by them? Yes. Yeah, so my, my, my wife got stung by seven of them at one time, and she was like loopy McMuffin cakes for like a whole day. Nice. Yeah. I, uh, I immediately ran inside and sprayed it with Benadryl spray, mm-hmm. so that kind of brought down the swelling on it, but like it was, it's so itchy now. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it is, have, you tried, have you tried administering like a hydrocortisone? 
I don't have any in the you know I just moved and I don't have any in the house so mm-hmm. well so as Are a doctor this as a doctor I strongly recommend you go out and get yourself a uh, hydrocortisone a little okay uh, some hormones um, so, are you an MD doctor, or are you just a doctor, like I am? <laughs> can, you write, can, you write, can you write prescriptions? <laughs> oh, I can oh, write prescriptions. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, have we met in real life? Yeah, I was at the developer day last year at the summit, and uh, you asked, has anybody used Google Maps? And I'm the guy that raised their hands and, and said, yeah, I've used Google Maps before, but in the context of a user and not necessarily an API guy. All right. That was you in a probably, big room. That's no fair. That's like a big yeah. room full of people. Dave, if you hang out with me at all, or if you see me at things like Gunner has seen me at, like, it, there's no veins popping. I get this way no, without I'm, veins. I'm, I'm <laughs> right? Like, it's just, no, 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 no. I could get, I really, it's, it has no, the, the degree to which my veins bulge has no degree, is no correlation with the degree to which I am worked up. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. And I'm not saying you're angry. You're just passionate. Yes. Well, so the, and actually, that's a, that's a that's a fantastic lead in because uh, so Steve, you're like famously, you're like one of the best evangelists that Red Hat has. Um, I don't think that's yeah. news. I don't think that's news to you. Um, and one of the reasons I don't think is that's actually true, but <laughs> take my word for it. Well, and okay. one of the things is like you are in, you are really passionate about uh, but was it, and you get excited about the product and you get excited about the problems that you're solving. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, have you always had kind of an evangelical role, or were you just born to do this? Okay, so as a Jew, I would like to say that <laughs> you know, I don't. Like, people are always shocked that I say I'm a developer evangelist. I think uh, I know we call it that. I call it developer advocate as well. It's just you know, like it's it's yes, I've always had this. Like we were saying before, like there when you said one of your friends is a de facto lawyer or an a priori lawyer, I was going to say, are they Jewish? I mean, I think they're. Well, I won't go down that route. Well, I'll just say I have always been passionate. My home life from a young kid onward and my culture tends to emphasize pushing and being passionate and discussing very vigorously lots of concepts and being excited about things. Mm-hmm. And what I aim for is strong opinions loosely held. It's the I got the strong opinions part down pat. It's the loosely held part that I really need to work a little bit more on. <laughs> well, um, do you think but, well that that was one of my questions like is that so, like, what constitutes um, an evangelical approach for you? Like, what is the, what does it mean to be a developer advocate for you? Um, I, li- I like, I very much like the idea of strong opinions loosely held. Um, and so, does that mean that you're actually that you're? <laughs> it almost sounds like you're having this like Socratic dialogue with the developers that you're targeting. Is that? Do I, am I imagining that right? Yeah, it should be. I mean, I think to have. I think to have to be a good developer advocate, you have to be. You can't be straight marketing in the bad sense mm-hmm. of the marketing word, right? Like, what I really like about being a developer advocate is I'm not just a marketer, right? And I'm not just a technical person, and I'm not just a support person. Like, I get to play all. I'm kind of. A, I like to think of good developer advocates as bridges, right? And they bridge between all those groups, and they can wear that hat like a mile wide, an inch deep. Is that that's usually more of a developer advocate role, mm-hmm. and so you know I think. In terms of the strong opinions loosely held, the thing is I should be able to acknowledge it when there's deficiencies in our product or the way we do things. And if you can't do that when you get up on stage or when you're asked a real question, you quickly lose faith with developers. Right? Like They'll basically be like, oh, yeah, marketing fluff. I'm tuning out. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can't always say we're the – because nobody's the best at everything. And no product has no bugs. And no product is always the fastest. Right? And so if you 
get up there and you keep saying that and then if someone pushes back and you don't have a way to actually discuss that and then if they point out something and you should be able to say yeah you know you're right we should be that is something we should look at improving i think that's a role for a developer evangelist and then go back to your engineering team and saying look i've heard this at five different shows or four different shows we're really getting hit on this issue we need to improve on this or something like that so what's it so now you got me curious what do you think the what do you think the strongest aspects are what do you think the strongest attributes of OpenShift are? And what do you think are its weakest spots? Oh, great. Its weakest spots is that it tries too hard. And it, you know, spends the extra... It's like that interview question. What's your good qualities and your bad qualities? <laughs> and then you spin your bad qualities a good quality. I put too much effort into work, and sometimes I neglect my friends and family. <laughs> that's, that's my worst quality. Um, so I think the, what I really like about OpenShift and the part that gets me excited is it's polyglot, right? So we do, that means, and what that means is we do lots of different languages, lots of different databases. Um, and it's just their native. Like you don't have to necessarily go, we have great partners, but a lot of stuff you can actually use directly on the platform as well, which I find really nice. Two, I love that it's open source and like really open source with a really active community. Like most of our developers hang out in the OpenShift channel on Freenode. Like you can engage them directly in conversations or like we were doing a webinar was, I don't know, we were doing a webinar like two weeks ago, Grant and I were, and someone on the webinar asked a question that required Clayton, who's our lead UI guy, to, and I forget some other question that Clayton could answer. So Grant's like, hold on on the webinar, Steve, answer some other questions, I'll go grab Clayton and bring him back in. Like the team is like really into interacting with the community. You know, we have the Trello cards, we have, we have the IRC channel, like everything's really done in the open. And there's a lot of contributions from other people. Uh, is there anything else I really like about it? team i mean i but that, that's me as a personal employee hmm. there's lots of other things like i like our i like that we put an emphasis on simplicity for pricing right mm-hmm. that's one of the things i as a developer when i was starting to use like micro instances for just standing up projects for aws that i really disliked was it was you get charged based on transactions or bandwidth and i i can estimate how much disk space i'm going to use pretty well and how much cpu i need but in terms of transactions and bandwidth, like I don't have a good handle on that, nor is that really under my control. Right. Right. And so that always felt like trying to figure out what my cost could potentially be always felt really iffy. And mm-hmm. that like they were going to stick it like I could get a. It was like back in the old cell phone days when you used to, you know, there wasn't unlimited texting and unlimited minutes. I'm willing to pay more to not go over the ceiling than and have certainty than to have that like it could potentially be four thousand dollars when you don't expect it. And so yeah. I like that we don't meter on that stuff. Well, so, uh, that, no, do you want good. the bad parts now? Yeah, I, I totally parts? do. Yeah, please. Okay. So the bad parts are, I think we're late. To, we're later than some of our competitors to the game, and so we're still playing catch up, right? And I think one of the other things which has recently been changed is also um, uh, the SCLs helped a lot, right? So oh, explain SCLs. You, you should. Yeah, you should yeah. explain SCLs. Yeah, I will. So, so for those who don't know. Uh, OpenShift basically took Red Hat Enterprise Linux and whatever packages came with Red Hat Enterprise Linux, that's what we exposed to developers. So we got a lot of different languages because Red Hat Enterprise has a lot of different languages in it, but they're all like four years old, even if we're using Red Hat 6, right? Like we just upgraded to PostgreSQL 9.2. We used to be on PostgreSQL 8.4, which goes like end of life next year under the, po- under the PostgreSQL group. So what I think this is one of the things that Red Hat has recognized and they're doing a great job with now is this is called software collection libraries. And what this is is the ability to install newer versions of packages 
into your Red Hat Enterprise Linux distribution. They will be more recent, but they will also not be supported as long. Right, so I think that finds a good compromise between our two types of customers, which are, you know, big enterprise customers who make some big piece of software or have some big piece of software running, and they're like, I don't want to touch that machine for eight years. So I want you to keep backporting fixes and everything on that machine for the next eight years. And we say, well, you can have 10 because we're friends, right? <laughs> and so they have this very long time window, but that 10 years doesn't matter at all to developers, right? In 10 years, who knows what'll be happening? So with SEL, I think it's, three years of support or two years of support for each mm-hmm. SEL package. So like SEL just released um, PostgreSQL 9.2, which is the most recent. And you get two years or three years of support, and then you have to migrate to the newer version. Or you can use PostgreSQL 8.4, Red Hat 6, and have that for 10 years if you want. Right. But so what that's allowed for OpenShift is now we have PostgreSQL 9.2 in OpenShift because our target market is developers, and they want more recent versions of mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's what I I think that's helped us some. And then I was going to I thought there was some other. I thought there was some other weakness, but I can't remember. <laughs> so well, Steve, so th- what, maybe I'll well, remember as we go along. What is your uh, uh, favorite OpenShift application that's out there? And what is your favorite or what is a missing OpenShift app that you wish that was there that you want to have there like yesterday? Facebook. Facebook should totally port to OpenShift. I think it told, it would, that would be the best. Um, in terms of one that's missing, I don't, you know, I don't know. I like all sorts of apps. I love geospatial applications, though. So, I mean, but it seems like people are building new ones all the time. Uh, I'd like to see some more of the Code for America, which I guess we're going to talk about in a little bit. We're going to see some of those more ported over. Um, my favorite app, I don't know. I like, I like, so speaking of Code for America, I really like Chacha's app. But then Chacha Sykes wrote this really great um, California water rights application, which shows a map. And on the map, it shows a dot for every single water rights owner in the state. And it's amazing. Like, it's one thing to see like a pile of records, but it's amazing to see all the places where water is drawn out of the natural system and who owns rights to it throughout the entire throughout the entire state, which you can't visualize really without a map. But then even our own Gordon Half wrote it. He I think it's the he's a kayaker or a canoeer or something like that. And he lives in new England. And so he wrote, he took one of my little sample apps I wrote and he modified it. So now it shows all the water gauge stagings in new England and he's pulling it from the USGS site. I mean, I think that's what I like about platform as a service in general is it makes it very easy to write what's called situational apps. I've really, the, I've really moved away from liking the idea of huge, monolithic applications that do everything for everybody. And I'd rather have lots of small apps that I can tie together mm-hmm. into the that are really focused on the things that they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it sounds like that lets the apps that just fail fall off by the wayside and the other ones to live and instead of having this gigantic monolith that's either it, which makes everybody disappointed. That's right, because you the UI is like the same thing for seven different use cases which are not supposed to go together. Right. So, right. Yeah. Well, and that's and, and having those like many parts loosely coupled. I mean, that's really only possible because now we've kind of settled on REST as a as kind of an interchange format, right? As as like the API standard. Um, yeah, I think I think that combined with more responsive JavaScript and better and mobile applications, mm-hmm. right? So if we didn't have a good way of consuming it, if we didn't have like. I think there's two pieces to that, right? Because the architecture I tell most developers I think they should write from now on is server developers should write REST services and the user UI people writing whatever UI they write handle all the display and navigation of the site, 
right? Like those two be, because I think server developers do a bad job of writing HTML in general. I mean, you can mm-hmm. find some that do a good job, but I don't like server side rendered HTML except in specific use cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you, that means you have to have a client that can consume either JSON or XML and do nice things with it. And until we got Ajax and then the nicer JavaScript libraries on top of that, what you could write REST services until the cows come home, but you still wouldn't have a nice way to display them. Right. right, and until right. we got nice mobile UI frameworks, and I'm not talking about HTML ones, I'm talking about like Android and iPhone mm-hmm. that can consume REST and do nice things with them. The that part of the equation would have fallen apart as well. Right. But now that you have mobile apps, mobile HTML, and desktop HTML, I like the idea of REST services because then the server developers are like, I will enter into a contract with you that I, you give me this request and I will give you this data. And then the UI people say, great, I know what I can ask for and what I'll get back. And then I can go ahead and make whatever UI I want to make. And I don't have to wait for you to make changes so that I can change my UI. Got it. So, right. Right. And I think that's one of the other places where platform as a service is great as well, because you can stand up. I'm going to be talking a lot about platform as a service, but it's very easy to stand up small little REST services and see how well they interact and then throw them away if you don't like them and try a different one. Or this is not scaling well when we write it in language X, let's try it in language Y or with database X, let's try database Y, right? Like it's very nice to have a tool set you can play with as a developer without having to call a sysadmin or having to, you know, spend five days yak shaving. Right. You know, trying to install servers and get them to work right in it. And where's the log files going? It's just like, okay, no, one command and I got that and I can start playing. At least it's a first pass. So is that, so is that, is it those attributes of platform as a service that were attractive to Code for America? I think so. I think, well, the thing that, so for the, for those who don't know, um, OpenShift is one of the partners with uh, Code for America and Code for America is kind of like Peace Corps for internal Peace Corps to the United States for uh, developers. Basically, what happens is there's an application process. Have you talked about it before on the show, Gunnar? Uh, I think we, we've touched on it, but go ahead. Do, do, a, do, a, do a little orientation. That sounds good. Okay. So what happens is every year, a bunch of cities apply to be Code for America cities. And they say, this is why we need technology people to come work with us. And then Code for America picks several cities. And then they all at the same time, they're also interviewing people who want to be Code for America fellows who get a stipend, some money any of the financial arrangements, but basically they take a year off from whatever they're doing. And most of them are not kids right out of college. Most of the fellows are actually people who've like worked for a startup or worked for some other company and want to take a year off and do something else. Um, and so then what they do at the end is they matched selected fellows with selected cities. And then the fellows kind of stay with that city for the year. And part of that is they go to the city itself and they work in the IT department or they work in the service department. And then the fellows think of ideas for applications that the cities might need and they build them. And so that's great. Like they build lots of these applications. One, for one, Let's take one example, which is one of my favorites, which is the Adopt-A-Hydrant program that was developed for Boston. Mm-hmm. Right? Boston, Boston has blizzards. I, I seem to remember some of the white stuff falling when I used <laughs> to live in the Northeast. And what happens is hydrants get covered. And so fire departments can't find the hydrants. So they said, we need to have a way to recruit citizens to have them clear the hydrants for us, because there's no way we can get everybody to our own employees to go out and clear out all the hydrants. So the CFA fellows for that year built a Adopt-A-Hydrant application. And basically what it is, is you go to the map and you say, I'm adopting that hydrant. And when it snows, you are responsible for clearing that hydrant. And so the other, what happened with that is then Honolulu has tsunami sirens. And it turns out that people like to steal batteries out of tsunami sirens which I don't understand, but they like to do it. And so 
Honolulu basically took the same app, reskinned it, and said, adopt a siren. And so now people can go and check to make sure that there's a, a batteries in the tsunami siren every time they go out there. And so I think that's a great example of the technology coming together. And so I, but the problem that comes up for a lot of these cities is, it, you know, it's one thing to have the code, but then how do you actually host the code and run the application and have easy ways to test things and throw them away and move, you know, move it around and do stuff with it, and then to run it over time? I mean, a lot of the a lot of uh, city and county IT departments are overstretched as it is. And so telling them, like, the CFA fellows are all basically cutting-edge technology people. Like that um, Adopt-A-Hydrant is Rails with PostgreSQL. And that is not a typical installation for most municipalities. Yeah, right. right. They, they wouldn't know what to do with it if you, if you gave it to them, right? They've probably never right. seen Ruby before in their lives, a lot of them. That's right. Yeah. And, and how do you host it? And they're like, and so you come to them and say, oh, well, you just have to install Apache, and then you install... <laughs> Then you install Passenger, and then you install Ruby, <laughs> and then you install Rails, and then you do this whole gem thing, and then you install PostgreSQL, and you do that, and you do this, and then... And I mean, throw Varnish in like, front of it? I mean, it's, it's just a regular uh, Rails install. No big deal. Exactly, no big deal. <laughs> and most of them would go, okay, where's the GUI where I click? I mean, not be, just because they are so... Bur- like, those IT people are usually also running the email servers, running yep. I mean, everything inside that, maintaining the active directory, maintaining whatever directory server there is, they're just so overburdened that if you come to them and say, here's a whole bunch of new technology you need to learn just so that we can run this adop- one Adopt-A-Hydrant program, which nobody's paying for, mm-hmm. they're going to be like, yeah, whatever. right? That's not mission-critical IT. And so what Platform as a Service allows is for the fellows, part of the reason I pushed for this really hard um, to set up this arrangement was it was a great way for the fellows to experiment on something and then just hand it over to the cities when it's done, and it can be publicly hosted. But because OpenShift is also, we, you can run it on-premise, like you can take the bits and run them internally. If the IT department did say, well, this is mission critical to us, and we don't want this running in the public cloud, they can actually take OpenShift, put OpenShift internally, and then just it would just run internally like that. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think the platform as a service is good for the municipalities. One, because they get cutting-edge technology without having to learn it all right away. And two, it makes it very easy, again, for situational apps, both for developers internally and for the Code for America fellows. Well, and you know, one of my fantasies about the about this CFA partnership that we've got is that this is a it's a vector for introducing a lot of this newer technology, like you were saying, you know, Rails and uh, Node and and whatever else into these relatively conservative state IT departments. Right. I, I, I imagine a very frustrated, like 25, 26 year old hacker who's, you know, got some like network engineering job at a, at a city, um, and has no real way of innovating, right? Like if he wants to, if he has a good idea, he has no good way to kind of requisition the server he needs to go make that good idea happen. Um, but the idea that we could actually introduce a platform as a service and introduce some of the kind of good ideas of CFA into these organizations gives that 25, 26 year old, not only the, the air cover, but also the infrastructure he needs to actually make that good idea a reality. Um, that's, that's one of yeah. my hopes, right? I mean, and I think that's actually really true. So in one of my other lives, I mean, as we were speaking before, David and I are both doctors, doctor. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, I was, I'm actually have my PhD in ecology. And so I spent several years working as a conservation biologist uh, here in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And we did some work with one of the county governments here 
and I was helping them with some, one of their mapping projects. And I was advising the larger IT organization about, or I was working on behalf of the planning department as it interacted with the larger IT organization, trying to get a parcel viewer application up, right? And so the larger IT organization liked the idea of this large corporate uh, software package that had all the bells and whistles and, you know, it was the big, huge thing. And all the planning department wanted was a parcel viewer to put up on the web. So what happened is some guy internally knew PHP, knew open layers, and used the Google Maps API and built the parcel viewer, just like did it internally. And that's what they used internally. And it, that's because they were like, we cannot wait for this larger, big corporate process. And so I think, and it's not because the larger corporate people are bad or evil or anything, but there's a lot more CYA and process involved in the larger organizations. And it doesn't allow for that kind of experimentation, right? Like the question would be like, okay, you built this thing with open layers and PHP, who's supporting it? Who's doing, you know, who's going to, who, none of our staff knows PHP. And so I think that's the thing that OpenShift or a, pl a platform as a service that's on-premise gives the IT department the freedom to do is to say, well, we know that whole platform as a service is supported by whoever gives it to us. So you can use any of the languages that are in there and we're okay with that. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like, so it's like putting a, it's like putting a pre-built like laboratory on-premise, right? Right. Uh, so I like, think that's actually how s some of our larger customers are using it. Some of our large mm -hmm. enterprise customers are using it. Mm -hmm. Sure. So Steve, does it also open, it sounds like it, also opens the opportunity for people who aren't the traditional computer scientists um, or the IT people. It, you, you can actually get the, the scientists and the, the, the closer to the end user of what the application is to be able to take advantage of something like OpenShift or PaaS. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, that's the great thing about something like Adopt a Hydrant, right? Like, so what I would love to also see in the future with the CFA stuff is like a lot of these apps with slight tweaks become useful for almost anything like this adopt a hydrant could be adopt to anything adopt a pond. And then you just, you just change the data form to say, Oh, instead I want you to tell me how many frogs you see in the, you know, you do a little bit of tweaking to the data form and that's how you fit your, what you're storing in there. And mm -hmm. so it reduces the distance. It's like prepackaged apps that are much more modifiable than than things that used to come out before. Like even WordPress, you can bring up WordPress with one mouse click on OpenShift, and then it's much easier for people to play around with it than if they went to something like WordPress.com, right? Because you can't do as much there. So here it's a, a gap. It fills a gap in between, I'm going to install from source the entire WordPress stack, including Apache and everything else, and run it myself, and WordPress.com, which is I don't get any control other than theming on my WordPress site. Mm -hmm. And the plugins that they approve. So I think it's, that's what I like about platform as a service. It fits this middle layer, which is between I'm going to give you virtualized hardware and I'm going to give you everything all packaged up and you can't tweak it. Well, this is so awesome. I like it. Steve, thanks so much for talking with us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. guy has an almost intimidating amount of energy yes yeah i i, I don't know what kind of vitamins he takes but i need <laughs> i hope they're vitamins that's <laughs> <laughs> legal vitamins. <laughs> do they um, do doping in, uh, <laughs> all the drug testing for uh evangelists I don't yeah know. that's right um you know the international uh evangelist 
committee um, <laughs> governs that. I, I don't yeah. know about that if they've actually made a ruling on it yet. Um, but uh, no, it's really, you know, you talk to Stephen, it's just like his enthusiasm for this stuff is really infectious. Yeah. Um, and actually, I felt bad we had to cut the interview short. Um, I mean, it could have gone on for much, much longer. Um, he's, you know, because it's not just his enthusiasm, um, and it's not just his uh, his admirable like command of the material, um, mm-hmm. but it's uh, he, has, he has these great and very well-articulated opinions about um, both, you know, civic engagement, the IT industry, um, just super interesting guy. Um, really enjoyed talking with him. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Um, all right, Dave. Well, I think we're running. Got I think we're on hour six now. Yeah. If I'm calculating <laughs> this right. Um, so we better. And, we better. and we chopped out like half. <laughs> Seriously, we did. Um, that's right. And so we're going to, we're going to go ahead and record, uh, basically, part two of this um it's like a, a double album this is, like, this is like a double album that's right that's right um and i don't know if you can hear the echo i'm a little bit like uh, john bonham uh recording uh when the levee breaks i'm like yeah. I, I feel like i'm in the staircase um anyway <laughs> <laughs> little inside led zeppelin joke okay um what do you say dave you want to wrap this up yeah so uh, for all the people we offended on this show mm-hmm. um who, where, where should they go for uh, uh, filing their grievances? Yeah, so all the Stalin enthusiasts uh, should visit uh, <laughs> should visit the uh, Stephen Gunner show uh, at uh, <laughs> dgshow.org. Uh, that's uh, D is in Steve, G is in Gunner show.org. Great. Okay, Gunner. Well, great. Um, I guess we'll talk to you uh, all right. in a day or so and <laughs> get another episode going. All right, sounds good. Thanks, everyone. Bye bye.